Hello and welcome to Season 3 of The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron, and it is great to have you back with us for our new season. Over the last two seasons, we've asked a lot of questions. What powers should the central federal government of the United States have? And what powers should the state governments maintain? So what makes Democrats in the South different from those in the Midwest and Republicans in the Northeast different from the GOP in the West? What actually is the United States? What is federalism? What are the basic essential elements of a federal government? Is it a kind of an agglomeration of independent governments that have decided to create one federal government to organize themselves, or is the United States an expression of a deeper felt union amongst all the states, all the people that predates uh, even the states themselves? And we've sort of danced around a key fundamental aspect of America that makes the U.S., the states, special. South Carolina. So in Vermont, for example. Pennsylvania, Nevada, uh, and so forth. Illinois, probably Maine. And Kansas. The states themselves, the stories, the elections, the policies, the political ecosystems, the people of these places are what drives the national narrative. So this season, that's what we're looking at. In fact, we've entitled this entire season The State of the States. The American states are incredibly important to America's politics and policy. And so this year, we're going to tell you why and how that's the case. As a part of this, we're going to zoom into a few key states, which happen to have important elections in the 2018 midterms in November, as well as some interesting policy shifts and trends. We're focusing on these states' stories and what they can tell us about American politics more widely. So what's your favorite state? That's a really good question. I might have to think about that. I think really, for me, my favorite state, and it's actually a state I've not been to, is New Jersey, mostly because of Chris Christie, who was their very, very uh, phlegmatic governor who's just left office, uh, was kind of an archetype of, of, of a political boss of the old school, one that made his way into the 21st century. So you might recognize that voice. This is Chris Gilson, my co-host, and within the U.S. Center here at LSE, it's no secret that Chris is a bit of a state politics aficionado. But for non-facetious reasons, I think New Jersey is really interesting. It's close to a, a political and economic powerhouse of New York, um, but it's very rarely mentioned or heard about outside of uh, the East Coast or the states. So when did this interest in state politics begin, Chris? Well, my interest in state politics actually has to go a little farther back than uh, my work on the U.S. Many years ago, I used to run the uh, Europe blog focusing on European politics. And one thing I found running that is that a lot of the smaller European countries that never got press in the U.K. and Europe actually really piqued readers' interests, places like Bulgaria and Romania and I Iceland even. And so when I moved over to to running the USAP blog here at the U.S. Center, I said, well, let's look at the states individually. People know a lot about New York. They know a lot about California. And then they might know a lot about Texas. But in the U.K. and Europe and in the rest of the world, and to some extent, even in some parts of the states, there's very, very little knowledge about what's actually going on. 
And I found that the mainstream media, both here and in the US, just weren't covering what was going on in these individual states, be that little uh, state center races or congressional races or policy shifts, uh, changes in taxation or the expansion of Medicaid and that kind of thing. And I... In covering the states for for the center's blog, I found a really good response and really been able to carve out a niche for us in a way that I think we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So for this sort of introductory episode, you and I talked to another couple Chris's, Chris Kantak and Chris Banu, who are both experts in state politics. So Chris, Chris number one, Chris Gilson, when did you first come across their work and why why is it important to what we're talking about here? So I first came across their work as part of my regular trolls of uh, journals as uh, my edit role as editor of the USAP blog. Chris Kay works on uh, representation of women in politics. And I'm Chris Kantak. I'm associate professor of political science at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, Chris B. Uh, looks at state courts and state legal systems. I'm Chris Bono. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Pittsburgh. One thing I also found out, apart from them being really fun and interesting contributors and writing great stuff on their own topics is they also edit state politics and policy quarterly uh, the journal and as someone who had a really big interest in state politics that was a really rich vein for me to mine for stories and articles and content for the blog uh, and it grew out of that and they're experts on state politics and i thought it'd be really important that we talk to them for this so chris when we were talking with them they they kind of made me think about how the differences between the states aren't aren't just limited to climate and landscape or, or even culture, but rather the political environments in each of the 50 states, and then therefore the laws and the regulations, have made it so that the, the textbooks in Texas and the cars in California have a big influence on the rest of the country. Um, so shall I just uh, get started, yeah. possibly? I'm just going to start out by asking, you know, my first question really is, how are state politics important? Well, so state politics matter broadly because they they tend to be the politics that affects Americans the most, right? So if you get arrested in the U.S., um, you're being arrested by either state or local authorities, right? So the federal government doesn't do that much that really affects kind of the day-to-day lives of Americans. Why should people outside of the U.S. care about U.S. state politics? Is it, or, you know, or should they? Well, the interesting thing about, you know, you looking at the U.S. states is the U.S., first of all, isn't the only federal system um, in the world. There are other federal systems. But a lot of experimentation goes on policy-wise in the U.S. states. So you have some states, if you just take the issue of education funding, some states fund education funding via property tax. Some do it via lottery. Some do it some combination of the two. And so it allows states and governments to experiment with different kinds of policies, which may be informative um, for other governments who also might be thinking about the same issues. Chris, it sounds like he's referencing that idea of that familiar idea of laboratories of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. This is the idea that policies can percolate and develop in various states and then move across other states or even rise up to become nationally important. Chris Kanthak mentioned that the journal the two of them co-edit actually explored this a bit further. We had uh, at State Politics and Policy Quarterly just like a year or two ago um, did a whole um, special issue on what we call policy diffusion. So the idea is 
one state will come up with a new way of doing something and the other states will learn about it, right? So if it works well, they will take it on um, and you'll see more of it. If it doesn't work, they don't do it so much, right? So if you look at something like marijuana legalization, um, in some country, in some states, uh, like Colorado, marijuana is completely legal as a recreational drug or for, for whatever you want to use it as. Um, in states like Pennsylvania, uh, where Crispano and I live, it's only over the, the past couple of months has it become legal to use marijuana uh, for medical reasons. In other states, it's completely illegal. Um, so those kinds of things really, that, those kinds of policies are made on the state level and they're different for every state. I mean, what would what would you both say have been the big issues that have where we've seen that kind of policy diffusion over the last, say, five, 10 years? You talk about marijuana uh, decriminalization, legalization. What else sort of comes to mind as, as big issues? Well, one of the big ones, I think, is gay marriage, um, because that was an issue where um, it was illegal across the United States. Um, and then certain states started. Um, accepting gay marriage. Um, and then the question became, how do other states think about um, a gay marriage, right? In most places, and this is a really important um, rule in terms of how federalism works, if I have a contract in Pennsylvania, that contract is still in effect in New York, right? So prior to, uh, to the change at the federal level, level of the gay marriage law, there was this question as to if I'm married in Pennsylvania, um, does New York have to recognize my marriage? Um, and there was federal legislation that said that no states didn't, did not have to recognize um, gay marriage in other states. Um, and, that's, and that ends up being a, a real um, difficult issue right? Um, because where you are should not affect whether or not you're married. Um, and that was an issue where the federal government finally had to step in and say, hey, on this one, we need one policy for all of the states. Um, and then, and so really the, the issue that came down from the federal Supreme Court was states need to recognize gay marriage in all states, right? Um, that it, that you can't do this um, this kind of piecemeal policy state by state on something like marriage. The other issue that's that's been really prevalent is voter ID laws and whether or not you need to provide a picture ID before you vote. And states have some states have pretty strict voter ID laws where it needs to be a government ID needs to be officially issued by the government and you must show it every time you vote. Other states have much weaker voter ID laws. There are questions about who pays for these voter ID laws, how easy is it for, for voters to obtain these, and so on. And so one of the things that we're talking about a lot um, at the state legislative level now is, is voter ID laws. You talked about in sort of the in the area of gay marriage, the, you know, the idea of the Supreme Court making a, a sort of final a, a sort of judgment on, on, uh, on that across the country. So how have state politics influenced or are influencing the national agenda and the national conversation? State politics have influenced the national agenda for, for years, particularly as the federal government um, gets less and less effective at, at passing policies. State governments have to do certain things. They have to provide certain services for their citizens. They have to um, run the state. And so 
they've become, I think, less reliant on, on leadership from the federal government because federal government has not been able to do a lot in that regard. The other issue is even when the federal government gets into a policy area, oftentimes they leave the implementation of that to the states. And so gay marriage is, is kind of an exception in that regard in the sense that the federal government said, all right, here's what you have to do, and now go do it. A lot of times they'll say, here's a broad parameter of a policy, go ahead and implement it. And so you can think about the issue of abortion in that regard with the federal government through the courts, but the federal government has said, basically states are free to regulate um, the issue of abortion under the undue burden test. So whether or not a regulation poses an undue burden to the woman seeking to have an abortion. Well, what is an undue burden? Is it 24-hour waiting period? Is that undue? What about 48? What about needing to have the abortion in a hospital versus a clinic? All of these issues are, are left up to the states to be implemented. And then eventually they'll be litigated out. But the states have a wide um, degree of latitude in, in implementing a lot of federal policy. And that's something that flows from the Constitution, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Constitution is really clear that um, that states have um, have the ability to make laws right and that they um, that they have a lot of power over what goes on in their citizens lives now that's changed over the course um, of US history and of course the Civil War played a big role in that um, but you know the idea that the founders of the U.S. had was that that really states had to have lots of power, right? And so I say to my students when I'm talking about um, the founding that that the founders thought of themselves as citizens of their states, not as American citizens. We currently think of ourselves. I, I think of myself more as an American than I do as a native of. Pennsylvania now, um, but that hasn't always been the case. So the idea that states um, need to be able to make laws and the federal government is not allowed to um, to prevent them from doing that is something that comes straight from the Constitution and is really um, kind of at the bedrock of how the American political system works. The way to think about it, as I teach my students, is the, the federal constitution sets a floor of rights that the states can't go beneath. But there's nothing to stop the states from giving their citizens more protections and more rights than the federal government you know, sets the floor for. I was just going to say one example to kind of tie Chris's two points together about voting rights um, and that, that floor issue. Um, if a particular state wanted to lower the voting age to 16, which is an issue that's being discussed right now in some circles in the U.S., um, that state could certainly do that, right? Because states, uh, as Chris explained, states are the ones who are in charge of running elections. Um, so a state can't say that certain types of people aren't allowed to vote because the federal government says that anyone over 18 is allowed to vote, but they could lower a voting age if they so chose. At least for state elections. Right. And so this is just sort of with my UK hat on, which obviously our system is very different. This is a system that, that works by and large. It's sort of things seem to rub along together quite happily. Or can there be conflicts uh, between when different states do different things or try and do things differently to the federal government? Well, it depends what you mean by works. I mean, it works in the sense that we've had the, the Constitution, you know, for 
you know, well over 200 years. And so, but it ha it's not the case that it's been static. And so states' rights, if you will, have ebbed and flowed um, as the federal government has either been more active or less active in, uh, in certain policy areas. I think depending upon what policies you prefer at the state level, you may think the federal government is too big and impinging on state or states' rights, or you may think that the federal government should do more to you know, crack down on these renegade states. Um, but in general, yeah, I mean, I think it works in the sense that we, we've had a, a stable system of government, a stable constitutional system of government for, for a very long time. So this question has two, two quick parts. What are the states that everyone is looking at at the moment in terms of uh, on the national stage? Uh, and what are the states that no one is looking at in terms of politics and policy, and they should be? Well, in terms of the states that people are looking at, I think it's really issue-dependent. Um, and so because states are dealing with different issues, um, this is why the, the whole notion of policy diffusion becomes important, that you're going to look to other states that are handling similar issues that are arising in your states. And so if you're you know, on the border states, maybe you're looking much more at issues of uh, immigration or protections for, for people who are coming across or undocumented. If you're a state that's considering legalizing marijuana you're looking to those states that have legalized marijuana to see how things are, are looking there and seeing how how is the federal government handling those states because even though it's legal in the states it's still a federal crime and if the federal government decides to enforce that law which obama said he was not going to but we'll see what's going to happen now you're looking at that if you're considering adopting a voter id law you're looking at the states that have adopted voter id laws if they've survived the legal challenges what are the the issues in um, that made those those voter ID laws constitutional versus the states that have lost the legal challenges to voter ID laws. And so it's really highly dependent upon what the state legislatures in any given state think of the important issues and how other states have addressed those issues, either successfully or unsuccessfully. Yeah, I think in terms of states that, uh, that don't get much attention and maybe ought to, um, I would look at some of the smaller states that, that tend to have um, bigger legislatures, right? So I mentioned New Hampshire, that is is not a huge state, but it, it but it has it clearly it has a real citizen legislature, right? The legislature is really big, doesn't meet that often, but it doesn't. New Hampshire doesn't have the same kind of politics as other states do, where you have this idea of politicians being out of touch with everyday people because the politicians in New Hampshire are everyday people. That's not their full-time job. They they make kind of pocket change by doing it. They don't meet very often. And those I think are the states that that people don't pay very much attention to largely because they don't have huge pay attention to me machines like a lot of the more professionalized legislatures have. Uh, but that's where a lot of, of, uh, of policy gets made. That's where a lot of the laws that people live by actually happen. So what can we learn from state-specific stories and state-specific policy shifts that we can't learn from national research? So Denise, the thing about national research or national stories from journalists is that they tend to generalize and they tend to simplify because you're trying to fit 250 million people into one framework, people with different ethnicities, different cultures, sometimes even different languages. 
And that's actually really hard to do, fitting all those people into one framework. So state research, state politics and policy research, takes a different frame. It looks at the individual states and finds out what people are doing on a on a state or a city or even a sort of a county level. And by looking at what we've called laboratories of democracy, we actually find out what, how states are working as proving grounds for certain policy, policies, whether it's Romney Care in Massachusetts, which actually informed Obamacare, or Kansas, uh, the tax drops in Kansas that have actually ruined the state's finances. And now what, what does that tell us about the recent tax cut bill in, in, in Congress? So the geography in me knows that the local is important. And by looking at states, we get the specific stories that are locally important and actually can then inform us what's going on further up the line in terms of national politics. My perception is that more U.S. academics are seeing the value of studying and looking into state politics. Would you agree with that or disagree? Oh, I totally agree. If you look at over the past decade or two, the number of articles that are being published uh, utilizing the U.S. states, it's exploded in just about all of the the major journals. Um, if you take our journal, for example, State Politics and Policy Quarterly, the journal was only founded in 2000. So we're a relatively young journal. Um, and yet we've seen submissions increase marketably um, over the course of that time. Um, and it's not just the number of articles, but it's the quality of articles as well. And some of this has to do with the fact that people are re recognizing the value of, of studying subnational politics and the institutional variation that occurs that allows us to, to get increased analytical leverage. And a lot of it has to do also with the fact that previously we couldn't answer a lot of questions at the state level because we didn't have the data. And as more and more states now are putting a lot of public data, election results, all um, committee deliberations online, it's made it easier for scholars to engage in large and systematic research exploiting this kind of institutional variation because the data is much more readily accessible and, and, and these projects become manageable. Yeah, and I think in terms of, of just to, to backstop this point on variation, right, we see lots of variation in, in the states on all kinds of dimensions. So if you're interested in something like I am with, uh, with women's political representation, you don't get much variation in the, in the uh, U.S. Congress. And that variation is, is mostly over time, whereas we have states that uh, that have nearly 50% women and states that have, you know, fewer than 20% women in their state legislature. So if you're interested in knowing what the effect is of having different percentages of women in your legislature, you can't do that study at the national level, but you can do it at the state level. So a lot of, and this has been true for a long time, right? In the, in the 80s, nobody really studied women in legislatures at the national level because there weren't enough of them. So all of the research on that was at the state level. Now that's changed a little bit, but it's been completely informed by the research that came before that at the state level. So you can ask questions that you can't really ask at the national level because you're able to get variation. And what variation is, as social scientists, that's what we need. We can't explain things that stay the same all the time. But if you if you see parts moving, we can explore those moving parts and see how they're affecting other moving parts. And you get a lot more moving parts in the states. What are what are some of the most hotly contested topics or methods 
in state politics right now? Well, measuring. So recently we published a, a back and forth about measuring like public opinion in the states. So how do you go about uh, measuring public mood or public opinion in the states, both at the mass level and the elite level? You know, it, I think writing on it both quite smartly. Um, so that I think is one of the, the ongoing um, issues, debates right, about, about measurement. I think one of the other big things that we're seeing more and more is the value of the, a single state or a handful of states being studied uh, by themselves. When I first got into this, the, the rule was you had to look at all 50 states. And if you didn't look at all 50 states, you needed to go out and, and collect more data. You needed, to be, you needed to stop being so lazy with your data collection. But I think now the, the um, research has matured in the sense that you really can study one state or a handful of states who has a set of characteristics that you're particularly interested in, and there will be interest in that. Right. So, for example, Nebraska has a unicameral state legislature and that makes it unusual. And so single state studies of Nebraska or just are just fine. Or if there's a particular issue that that one state has dealt with in a way that might be informative for other states, that's just fine. Those are things that our reviewers maybe five, 10 years ago would say, this isn't, this isn't important enough to get into state politics and policy quarterly because it's only looking at a handful of states. And we just don't see that critique as much as we used to at all. I think it's also important sort of for people in the UK and Europe to remember that some of these states are massive, both in terms of size and population. They rival, you know, how many countries is California bigger than in terms of population and size? So that we're not dealing with small units here in a lot of cases. Right. And we're and we're dealing with when you look at some of those bigger states, there's their policies have big effects on everyone. Right. So so, for example, the state of Texas has very specific rules about what their school textbooks can look like. And because the state of Texas is so big, a lot of publishers of school textbooks essentially publish books for everyone that fit the the Texas rules. The same thing is true about cars in California uh, and, and um, certain kinds of plastics in California. California has very specific rules about that, that in many ways it's cheaper to do it California's way everywhere in the United States than to have different kinds of bottles going to California. So in that sense, these, yeah, these bigger states have tremendous effects on how other people live their lives. Textbooks in Texas and cars in California. Right. Right. Yeah. There you go. That's the name for the podcast. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so this season is part of a bigger project from the U.S. Center about the, quote, state of the states, right? What is that going to look like? So alongside this season of, of the Ballpark Podcast, which is the state of the states, we are creating a, a database, a dashboard called the state of the states. So it takes the idea that, as I've said, that the knowledge of U.S. state politics is not great in the U.K., in Europe, and in the rest of the world, and to some extent the states themselves. 
And we're going to create a resource so that journalists and, and people who are interested in public policy can access this information instantly and easily without having to dig through lots of sort of Wikipedia-style pages. And we're going to be working on it throughout the summer. We're hoping to have it available in early October, just in time for the midterm elections in November. Yes. You can pull up the, the State of the States dashboard while you're watching the returns on election night in, in November. Exactly. I will be focusing on New Jersey, obviously. Yes, of course. And we're going from sea to shining sea with this season. So where is the ballpark going between now and November? Well, for the next seven episodes of The Ballpark, we'll be focusing on individual states. States that have interesting Senate races and states that have interesting policies, uh, policy problems and policy challenges. So we're hoping to look at Arizona, Tennessee, possibly New Jersey, Vermont, Indiana, Missouri, Wisconsin, maybe Texas. I think that's more than seven, so we'll see where they finally land. Um, but there will be seven of those within that. And we're going sort of paying attention to each day and talking to people from that state or people who have experience of that state. It's like an audible road trip, yeah. I guess. Hey, folks. Chris here again with a super quick correction. In the earlier segment, I said the U.S. had 250 million people. Yeah, I was way off. It's more like 325 million. Sorry. I'll do better next time. Thanks for listening. So that's it for this episode of The Ballpark, but it's just the beginning of this season. Thank you to Chris Kantak and Chris Banu. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-host Chris Gilson and also with the help of LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They are so good, they're so good, that we brought them back for a third season. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. I always like to see how fast I can say it. It's the kind of thing you say fast. <laughs> in our next episode from the ballpark, we're going southwestern and heading to Arizona. A lot of the anti-immigrant laws that are now being put across on a federal level, a lot of the policies that are being implemented by ICE, were tested in Arizona for the past 10 years. You had people like Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We now have more episodes than Faulty Towers. <gasps> oh, I love we it. Do. I think I think we do. Oh, we'll fact check that. Yeah. Sarah I think it's got like 12 that. or something like that, I think, and we've got 18 at least. Yes. Got, uh, I'm sure there's more, so. Oh, yeah. I love it. There you go.